jumpsters from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated by their queen, and loved here in America, here are the Beatles! Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. In 1965, the Beatles shattered all existing box office and attendance records in show business history when they sold out Shea Stadium to 56,000 fans. No band before them had ever played a baseball stadium and few believed it could be pulled off. Celebrated Hollywood author Lori Jacobson describes all the excitement and details of the concert in her new book, Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965, which features hundreds of color photographs and gives a -a one-of-a-kind account of this monumental event, gathering first-person interviews from dozens who experienced this concert, such as Whoopi Goldberg, Meryl Streep, Stevie Van Zandt, Linda Eastman, Mick Jagger, and more. And here today to talk to us more about this iconic and historical concert is Lori Jacobson. so much for coming on the podcast how's it going it's going great i'm thrilled to be here so laura you just wrote a great book called top of the mountain the beatles at shea stadium in 1965 i'd love to ask you questions about this book but first i want to ask you about how you got into the beatles music in the first place uh like almost everybody else in america i first heard them on the ed sullivan show of course Yes, of course. Um, I was in fifth grade. I wasn't quite so sure. You know, it was a real turning point for me because Disney was on (laughs) at the same time. And so, you know, and I was just at that threshold with my age, you know, do I turn off Disney and go with Ed Sullivan? And, and forever after that, it was Ed Sullivan because then he had everybody on. And what were your thoughts when you saw them on Ed Sullivan? Uh, that Paul was unbelievably cute. And um, I loved I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I wrote down the lyrics and passed them out at school the next day. And everyone was talking about them. So it was really, you know, it was, it was a big change. It was the change where I think we went from being little girls to little tweens, as they call And what was it about their music that was so different than contemporary music back then? I have to say, I wasn't certainly wasn't buying records yet. The music that I heard um, was uh, whatever was on the radio when my mom was driving us places. And... You know, there were a few uh, pop songs that I liked. I remember mom actually buying us um, 
Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. And, you know, there were like soft little things like Johnny Angel. And then there were weird little things like um, um, Ting Tang Walla Walla Bing Bang. I don't know if that was a big hit where you... You were, but there were, you know, funny songs that we like to sing along to. But, um, you know, rock and roll, mom, mom and dad weren't into Elvis. You know, they were more into the Rat Pack. And, you know, so so uh, the Beatles were really my first foray uh, into rock and roll for me personally. And the first albums I bought rushing to the uh, record store the moment they came out. Lori, can you walk us through how you eventually came to write this book? I know that you were once a stand-up comedy student in the same class as Robin Williams. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, I uh, I moved to Los Angeles in um, the mid-70s in search of an acting career. And... um, I found my way to a fabulous uh, comedy workshop, comedy improv workshop, um, where where I w- went for seven years uh, alongside Robin and John Ritter and John La Roquette and Scott Bayo for a little while and um, all kinds of people passed in and out of that class. And I remember, um, I mean, it was a really hot class and the people that audited it were amazing. So I remember going to class one day and Peter Noon was sitting behind me and, um, I, and, and then he joined the class which, you know, we were all flipping out and, um, and he was so modest. I did a scene with him where, um, I worked in every title to every song of his that I could think of. And he was blown away by that. And we were like, really, you know, why are you surprised? And he said, well, you know, noon spells no one. And I thought, wow, you know, I mean, I guess it was a little bit of a slump time for him, you know, before he, before nostalgia took over. And, um, but uh, one, and then another day he brought his friend Dave Clark (laughs) to audit the class, you know, and I'm like, it was amazing. It was just so, and, and all kinds of people audited the class. So it was an amazing place to be. And, um, Robin, got Mork during that period, but he always stayed in the workshop um, because that's where you could fail. That's where you could try new things. And, um, and that was uh, an incredible home. And I loved that period of time. And during that time, I fell in love with Hollywood history and those who had come before me that I so admired. And I loved, you know, I loved going to the places they went. So there I am at Schwab's drugstore. uh, And back Back in the 70s, you ran into people who held on to their jobs for 30 or 40 years. So there were career waitresses, career maitre d's, 
um, the guards at the gates of the studios, and no one had plied those people for their stories. And believe me, they saw it all. You know, the guards at the gates were often um, used to fire people when, say, Jack Warner didn't have the nerve to do it himself. He would just tell the guys at the gate, don't let the the Bowery boys back on the lot on Monday. And that's how they got the news that they were out. Um, the Mater D's kept their jobs for so long because they knew who was dating whom. And I can't seat Van Johnson next to his ex. And, you know, the, and um, so they really, they, they had all the dirt. And uh, I found myself just uh, asking a million questions. And that led to my first book. Uh, about um, tragic and mysterious deaths that uh, the li- the lives of of these people helped to build the city and the industry, and their de- deaths contributed to its mystique. And from that, I was hired to write documentaries, and and then I started appearing on documentaries, and. Uh, I, and and I was hired by a wonderful producer named Jack Haley Jr. Uh, he was the son of the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. And talk about stories, man. Jack knew everybody. Um, here, I'll tell you one of his great stories. Um, he was in college, and his parents at that time were living in New York, and he came home for Christmas, and they were throwing this mad party. You know, they're... Irish and they could drink pretty good. And he walks into the apartment and at the top of the stairs is Frank Morgan, who was in the Wizard of Oz. And uh, he turns to see who's at the door and he falls drunk all the way down the stairs and lands at Jack's feet. (laughs) And his father goes, son, meet the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) So he would regale us with these wonderful stories. And uh, and through J- Jack, we worked on a million terrific projects. And I met I met everybody I ever wanted to meet in Hollywood. It was it was really wonderful. And um, I continued to write books about entertainment history. Which leads me to uh, Top of the Mountain. I. There are so many books about the Beatles. I have always been a Beatle maniac. I have always loved them. They changed my life. But I never dreamed I would get to write a book about them. A friend of Sid Bernstein's, who produced, Sid produced the Shea Stadium concert. Um, I never got to meet Sid, uh, but his closest friend told me how Sid made this concert happen. And it was such a unique story. One of those could never happen again in a million years stories. And once I had the story, I began, I just ran with the ball. I started looking for people who had attended the concert and then found out 
you know, that Meryl Streep was there and Whoopi Goldberg was there and Steve Van Zandt and Joe Walsh and the Ronettes and Marvin Gaye and Mick and Keith and just an array of amazing people. And then I started looking for people that worked the event in some way. I I interviewed at least one person from every opening act. I talked to security people, agents, promoters, producers, um, Ed Sullivan's son-in-law who produced the documentary that was shot that night. Um, you know, and, and finding out that like one of the cinematographers he hired was Gordon Willis, who later shot the Godfather and half a and and half of Woody Allen's films, you know, just amazing people were involved in this one incredible night. So, Lori, what was the significance of the Beatles performing at Shea Stadium, and why is this one of the most iconic concerts in history? Yeah, why this concert? Um, I'll tell you why. It First of all, it broke all attendance records in show business history to that date. Not Elvis, not Sinatra, nobody had played to 56,000 people before, and nobody had been paid $160,000 before. And when you consider that the Beatles only played for 28 minutes, that's a pretty damn hefty paycheck. Sure, yeah, yeah. So so for those two reasons alone, um it, it's very significant. But the aftermath of the concert was tremendous. First of all, technology woke up the next morning and said, This is the future, and we failed. We are not ready. Nobody could see the Beatles way out there at second base. They were like little ants and nobody could hear them over all the screaming and the Vox speakers that were there that night were a joke. Um, in fact, the um, documentary that was made has was was dubbed over um, by the Beatles and uh by the Beatles in studio. And also they took other live performances and, and use that audio instead of the concert, which, um, Bob Precht, the, the producer wanted to use the, the raw sound from that night. Uh, he thought it was great, but, uh, Brian Epstein, was a real stickler for quality and he would not allow that. So, okay. So technology, you know, gets ready in a big strap and hurry because three years later is Monterey pop and four years later is Woodstock. And they were completely ready for that. Um, no rock and roll fans had ever seen 56,000 people like themselves before. And many people who were there last night said that was so empowering and life-altering for them. Um, you know, and soon you would have um, these people demonstrating in the streets, burning draft cards, um, protesting Vietnam. Um, it was a real coming together 
and a real awakening for for that generation. Um, uh, and also, um, Madison Avenue uh, woke up the next morning and said, wow, these kids are buying more than pimple cream. We underestimated them and and whole new industries shot up around this concert. Uh, Barbershops almost went out of business and suddenly men's hairstyling and men's hairstyling products came into being. I mean, it just uh, and also censorship in in films in Hollywood ha- had a big wake up call, um, and and very shortly after the concert, we saw nudity in Hollywood films for the first time. So you know, and the miniskirt and fashions and woo, every, it was just the top of the mountain. It really, really was. You know, you mentioned that the original film was dubbed over. I'm wondering, do you know if the original sound recording of that concert still exists? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. I don't know whether they saved it or or tossed it out. Um, I do know the sad story of the documentary, uh, which, you know, I mean, they they shot miles of footage and there are two songs that they cut out because it, it was running too long for an American TV special. So they cut out, um, George's big solo and, um, and a song that, uh, and another song that they had to, almost all the cameras had to change, uh, film canisters at that time so they didn't get the whole song um but they had part of it and they and George's solo they cut out because it wasn't written by the Beatles and so they figured if they're going to get royalties it may as well go to them and not someone else but um you know they cut uh, they shot the Beatles you know getting into limos and getting into the helicopter and flying over New York and um you know, returning to the hotel afterward. I mean, every inch of the concert was shot and every inch that they didn't use was thrown away. Oh, no way. Yes. Really, really sad. You know, who thought about it back then? But they were in a small uh, editing facility and it wasn't like somebody could come in and say, hey, maybe we should save this. Nope hit the floor and was never, has never been seen again. Oh man. You know, it'd be really great if they still had it, they could release it. Uh, like Peter Jackson could yes. remaster it. They could put it out on Disney plus, but man. Gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. That was a sad one. Laura, you've done so much research for this new book of yours of the Beatles at Shea stadium. And you've included so many personal accounts of that night. I'm wondering, how long did it take you to compile all of this information, and what was the most fascinating aspect of doing it? Um, I spent uh, off and on seven years researching this book and looking for people, um, jumping through the roof when I, you know, half the fun is the hunt, 
you know, and then when, and then when they'd call me back, you know, it was just amazing. Like I, I wanted to reach John Sebastian and, um, I had no way to get a hold of him. And I wrote him, uh, a message on Facebook and he, and put my phone number in and he called me. I mean, wow. that's, it was like unbelievable, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and what a thrill that totally made my day. Um, and he told me just fabulous, funny stories, which I love that, you know, once I got the people, um, many of them hadn't thought about, those days or that particular day, depending on who they were, um, for so long. And, uh, it was a joy for them to recall the occasion. Yeah, of course. Um, I, the, the other half of your question was, um, what, uh, what amazed me about talking to these people or what surprised me. And th there were a, a, a lot of things. Um, one guy that I spoke to whom I just adored, his name is Dave Glide and he lives in Australia. He um, was in one of the opening acts, the band called Sounds Incorporated, later shortened to Sounds Inc. Um, and he went by a different name then. And he, he said that was because, uh, like the Beatles, people besieged his house and his parents' house. So he used a different name to spare his parents, um, all the fans. But uh, Dave's band um, was primarily instrumental with a big horn section. And... Um, Early on, uh, the rock, the American rocker Gene Vincent was going to play in London, and they didn't approve his band's work permits, only his. So he's there without a band, and he finds Sounds Inc. somehow, and they back him, and they're fabulous, and he goes back to America and tells everyone, if you go to... Uh, London hire this group. So they're playing for all the American acts coming over. And at some point they go to play Hamburg where they meet the Beatles. And the Beatles thought they were an American group because they backed all the Americans that the Beatles loved. Sam Cooke and uh, Little Richard and all these amazing people. Um, and so they be, they met, meet there and they become very, very good friends. Now, Dave told me that the Beatles were terrible on stage. They, ha they had no, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't have their act down. They had no phys physicality. They just stood there and played. They just, this is where they got their chops you know, and they became really good friends. And when they got back to England, George said to Dave, you got to sign with this guy we just signed with, Brian Epstein. So they do. And from that time on, Sounds Inc. 
uh, was very often an opening act for the Beatles. That was for two reasons. They became good friends with them, and they kept their mouths shut about what happened on tour because the guys all had girlfriends and wives back home, and there were plenty of girls and drugs and sex on the tour. And Dave had a great time on tour with the Beatles, and he wasn't about to spoil that. So he he really loved his time there. He told me um, amazing stories. Um, uh you know, he was like no holds barred now because, you know, half of the Beatles are gone and the other half of the people we're talking about are gone. Um, I asked him if uh, what he felt about Brian Epstein's death, because there's a question as to whether it was suicide or accidental. And um, Dave felt absolutely positive that it was an accident. Um, Brian had a real dark side to him and he was, uh, heavily involved with, uh, pills and liquor, which is a terrible combination. And, uh, you know, people didn't know that pills were cumulative in your system at that time. And, um, you know, he took a couple of pills and had something to drink and didn't wake up in the morning. Um, but I was so uh, blessed to find these people who would give me the inside dope, so to speak. You know, that, that George got crabs from, uh, from the Ronettes, you know, from Ronnie Spector. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And what was the most, like... What was the uh, the biggest surprise for you to learn while doing all this research? The biggest surprise for me was that I could see the inevitability of the Beatles breakup as early as 1965. I mean, 64 is just the beginning and they are riding this incredible wave and they're in disbelief. Um, 65 was their perfect year. By 66, they were really tired of touring. They were tired of playing to audiences that weren't really listening to the music. They were just screaming. Um, they were anxious to get into the studio and, and try some more experimental stuff, which you know, clearly they they did by 67, they had Sergeant Peppers, but 65 was the perfect year for them. However, uh, John, especially, he loved his mates and he loved making music with them, but he was not enjoying being a Beatle. And as a Beatle, he had to do things he didn't want to do. Uh, he did not want to accept the MBE from the Queen. He felt a real hypocrite doing that and eventually sent his back. Um, he didn't want to wear the military-style jackets that they had to wear at Shea. He was 
becoming politically aware. He was becoming the John Lennon who would write Imagine and um, protest. Uh, and he didn't want to wear military. Um, his his way of protesting that was that he didn't button his jacket that night, but he was made to wear it because the other three were wearing theirs. Um, and he said every time something like that happened, he had to uh, give up a little bit of himself inside. So he he was moving away from being a beetle, not moving away from his friends, but moving away from being a beetle. And just before they shot, uh, just before they played um, Shay, they shot the movie Help. And in one of the scenes in Help, there was an Indian band playing in a restaurant where they were eating in this scene. And for the first time, George heard a sitar. And his mind exploded. What is that? And, and soon after, you know, he's off on his spiritual path. Um, Ringo gets discovered as an actor during Hard Day's Night. He has the lead in Help. John commented that he felt like an extra in his own movie, that it was all about Ringo. And he, he, he felt like it was a waste of time. He'd rather be in the studio but or with his family. But no, he's there skiing downhill and doing silly things. Um, meanwhile, Ringo's out in front of the drums and, you know, and uh, and the spotlight is put on him and he's loving that. And he's being offered more film roles. Um, the Magic Christian with Peter Sellers and all kinds of exciting stuff. Um, so he's looking away from the Beatles and looking toward an acting career. And Paul loved touring. He thought that was the answer to everything. Um, and that's where he wanted to be. He was the real showman of the group. So already they had divergent paths. And I could, I could see it happening. Wow. So that was really a surprise to me. And the other big surprise was um, John had several affairs with older women from different cultural backgrounds that opened him up to, you know, new art and literature and... Um, and I'm assuming uh, more sexual experience. And uh, and I thought, you know, whoa, here. And then along comes Yoko, you know, seven or eight years older, different cultural background. You know, he, he had a pattern of that. He, uh, he was just open to experiencing everything that he could. And when they, you know, Hamburg was a really wild scene with a lot of sex shops and um, whorehouses and uh, uh, houses for sex that offered whatever you wanted, three-way, bisexual, homosexual. And, you know, John tried them all. He was up for anything. And, and came crawling home in the, you know, 
in the wee hours of the morning, drunk and uh, satisfied. <laughs> so, um, you know, more so than any of the other three. So he just uh, wanted to taste life on every level that he could. You mentioned before that the Beatles wore military jackets at Shea Stadium and John decided to wear it unbuttoned. Do you know why they wore them? Did they decide to wear them or was that Brian Epstein's idea? I would suspect, uh, you know, I know Brian put them in those collarless suits, uh, which were so famous uh, and suits and ties come on. They never wore that in Hamburg. They never wore that at the cavern in that hot, sweaty windowless club, you know? So um, they had, and they had their leather jackets and their, you know, fifties sort of leather gear for a while. Um, they were not the suit and coat type um, Dave Glide, uh, Sounds Inc., they bowed at the end of uh, their act. And Brian saw that and said to the Beatles, I want you to do that. Um, you know, so he cleaned up, Brian cleaned up their image a lot. And um, part of that was, I think, picking out what they wore. So military style was coming in. You know, it was in. Right. <laughs> so, Lori, tell us, where can people find your new book and what kind of information can people expect to discover through it? Um, well, it's available wherever books are sold. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can certainly get it online at Amazon or Target.com or Barnes & Noble or any of those places. If you would like a signed copy, you can order it through me. Uh, my website is my name, Laurie Jacobson, and I am on Facebook and Twitter where I found you and uh, Instagram and LinkedIn and all of that. So just uh, private message me and we can make arrangements for you to get a signed copy. And, um, you know, one lady I'd like to mention, um, her name is Dawn Michaels. Uh, there was a um, discotheque dancing group uh, that was the first opening act to go on. And I found three of the ladies that were uh, in that group. Now, Dave Glide said, oh, when the Beatles went on tour, there was always a girl group accompanying them um, because usually nature took its course and the girls usually hooked up with somebody on the tour. And... Um, you know, the Beatles stayed away from uh, the fans uh, who were very young, usually. And um, th that was, you know, and women they didn't know uh, could be a lot of trouble, um, which they weren't looking for. So um, they played it safe and either girls were provided for them or there was a girl group on tour. And one of them, Dawn, who was in this um, group, she was a fantastic dancer and she was on Hullabaloo and um, uh, on Broadway. And she backed up a lot, Marvin Gaye and a lot of people. Um, she was at Shea and one 
thing, I, one incredible thing is that her dad went with her to Shea, which was the opening of the tour. And um, she said to me, oh, well, my dad took 80 color slides that night and we looked at them once and then we put them in a drawer. Would you like them? Um, yeah, that'd be great, dog. So, you know, her dad photographed everyone, Ed Sullivan, Sid Bernstein, um, Marvin Gaye. There are no photos of Marvin Gaye. He only came on stage and was introduced by, um, one of the DJs and, um, waved to the crowd and, and left. But her dad knew, uh, Marvin from his daughter dancing with him. So, I have the only picture of Marvin Gaye at Shea Stadium. Um, and of course, oh gosh, he took, um, he took so, so many great photos that night. So, and they're all color and they're all in the book. Um, Carly Simon's brother was there. Uh, and he took, he was 17. He took some amazing photos of the stadium and people had bed sheets made into signs and, um, uh, girls screaming and crying and, you know, just really great things that set the scene, um, for the concert. Um, I worked with, uh, one wonderful guy, Mark Weinstein. He was also 17. He was determined to sneak onto the field that night. He, um, wore a suit of his that happened to be four years old, three inches too short and too tight. And, um, but it was his lucky suit, right? So he laminated a business card from his um, local radio station and he had a really nice camera. So he found his way inside Shay, and um, he kept trying doors and they were all locked, all locked. And finally he finds one that's unlocked and he walks it through it and it's full of cops. <laughs> so he thought, Oh shit, if I run, I'm done. Right. So he quick on his feet, faked a British accent, walked over to the first copy, saw, said he was a friend to George Harrison's and had gotten separated from the group. And he's supposed to be taking pictures. And could you lead me out there? And I think, you know, we knew so little about British people at that time. They took one look at him in that funny suit and thought, yeah, he's British. <laughs> and they walk him right out onto the field where he took 60 um, shots at the edge of the stage, one of which is the cover of the book, and and the other fifty nine are in the book. Um, another gentleman, George Orsino, uh, sneaked in, also sneaked into the stadium, and the door he found that was unlocked was their dressing room, and he walked. In. You know, Brian Epstein was terrified about security. Like if 10,000 people decided to rush the stage, what could he do? Right. So he he is terrified something could happen to the boys. And here are these people just walking in, you know. I mean, I found that really hilarious. So George walked into the dressing room, you know, snapped a bunch of photos in there. Um 
went out onto the field, snapped more photos out there. So I have his photos in it. Um, Dawn, who I mentioned, um, the, the person she hooked up with on the tour was Paul McCartney. And um, she was with him for the entire tour and, and for years afterward. Uh, she lived in L.A., and whenever he was in L.A., he called Dawn. Um, and, she, she, yeah, that was pretty cool. And she had some very uh, wonderful personal stories that she shared with me. Um, so I really... I got some great stuff that I, and that's why it, it took so long. Um, one call led to another. And another fun thing was that I hooked Dawn up with two, the other two dancers from the group that I found. They hadn't spoken to each other for 50 years. And um, I love that kind of stuff. That's awesome. So Lori, what's next for you? Are you planning on writing another Beatles book? Are you involved in any new projects? I wish I could do another Beatles book because I'm meeting, you know, I went to the Chicago Beatle Fest. I'll be at the New Jersey Beatle Fest in the, in the spring. I am meeting these wonderful Beatle people and there is no one nicer on the face of the earth than Beatle people. Uh, you know, it's all peace and love and, uh, and the joy of music. And I wish if I, I hope I find it, another um another subject of of the beatles that hasn't been so intensely covered before but that's hard to do because there are hundreds and hundreds of books out there um i have also been working for decades on a book uh that is a history of the sunset strip I've been collecting stories and photos and um, working with a, another guy who has an amazing photo archive. And uh, we have promised ourselves that before we're too old, we will do that book. So that will probably be my next book. Awesome. Well, Lori, I'll leave a link to your book and your website in the podcast description so people can go click on that right now. Thank you. I so appreciate that. Jack Lawless, you have like the coolest name ever. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. <laughs> 